This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, Toronto, Ontario, December 2006. Bullfinch's Mythology, The Age of Fable, by Thomas Bullfinch. Chapter 27. The Trojan War. Minerva was the goddess of wisdom, but on one occasion she did a very foolish thing. She entered into competition with Juno and Venus for the prize of beauty. It happened thus. At the nuptials of Peleus and Thetis, all the gods were invited, with the exception of Eris, or Discord. Enraged at her exclusion, the goddess threw a golden apple among the guests, with the inscription, For the Fairest. Thereupon Juno, Venus, and Minerva each claimed the apple. Jupiter, not willing to decide in so delicate a matter, sent the goddesses to Mount Ida, where the beautiful shepherd Paris was tending his flocks, and to him was committed the decision. The goddesses accordingly appeared before him. Juno promised him power and riches, Minerva glory and renown in war, and Venus, the fairest of women for his wife, each attempting to bias his decision in her own favor. Paris decided in favor of Venus, and gave her the golden apple, thus making the two other goddesses his enemies. Under the protection of Venus, Paris sailed to Greece, and was hospitably received by Menelaus, king of Sparta. Now Helen, the wife of Menelaus, was the very woman whom Venus had destined for Paris, the fairest of her sex. She had been sought as a bride by numerous suitors, and before her decision was made known, they all, at the suggestion of Ulysses, one of their number, took an oath that they would defend her from all injury, and avenge her cause if necessary. She chose Menelaus, and was living with him happily when Paris became their guest. Paris, aided by Venus, persuaded her to elope with him, and carried her to Troy, whence arose the famous Trojan War, the theme of the greatest poems of antiquity, those of Homer and Virgil. Menelaus called upon his brother chieftains of Greece to fulfill their pledge, and join him in his efforts to recover his wife. They generally came forward, but Ulysses, who had married Penelope, and was very happy in his wife and child, had no disposition to embark in such a troublesome affair. He therefore hung back, and Palamedes was sent to urge him. When Palamedes arrived at Ithaca, Ulysses pretended to be mad. He yoked an ass and an ox together to the plough and began to sow salt, Palamedes to try him, placed the infant Telemachus before the plough, whereupon the father turned the plough aside, showing plainly that he was no madman, and after that could no longer refuse to fulfill his promise. Being now himself gained for the undertaking, he lent his aid to bring in other reluctant chiefs, especially Achilles. This hero was the son of that Thetis, at whose marriage the apple of discord had been thrown among the goddesses. Thetis was herself one of the immortals, a sea-nymph, 
and knowing that her son was fated to perish before Troy if he went on the expedition, she endeavoured to prevent his going. She sent him away to the court of King Lycomedes, and induced him to conceal himself in the disguise of a maiden among the daughters of the king. Ulysses, hearing he was there, went disguised as a merchant to the palace, and offered for sale female ornaments, among which he had placed some arms. While the king's daughters were engrossed with the other contents of the merchant's pack, Achilles handled the weapons, and thereby betrayed himself to the keen eye of Ulysses, who found no great difficulty in persuading him to disregard his mother's prudent counsels, and join his countrymen in the war. Priam was king of Troy, and Paris, the shepherd and seducer of Helen, was his son. Paris had been brought up in obscurity, because there were certain ominous forebodings connected with him from his infancy, that he would be the ruin of the state. These forebodings seemed at length likely to be realized, for the Grecian armament, now in preparation, was the greatest that had ever been fitted out. Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, and brother of the injured Menelaus, was chosen commander-in-chief. Achilles was their most illustrious warrior. After him ranked Ajax, gigantic in size, and of great courage, but dull of intellect. Diomede, second only to Achilles, in all the qualities of a hero. Ulysses, famous for his sagacity. And Nestor, the oldest of the Grecian chiefs, and one to whom they all looked up for counsel. But Troy was no feeble enemy. Priam the king was now old, but he had been a wise prince, and had strengthened his state by good government at home, and numerous alliances with his neighbors. But the principal stay and support of his throne was his son Hector, one of the noblest characters painted by heathen antiquity. He felt from the first a presentiment of the fall of his country, but still persevered in his heroic resistance, yet by no means justified the wrong which brought this danger upon her. He was united in marriage with Andromache, and as a husband and father his character was not less admirable than as a warrior. The principal leaders on the side of the Trojans, besides Hector, were Aeneas and Deiphobus, Glaucus and Sarpedon. After two years of preparation, the Greek fleet and army assembled in the port of Aulis in Boeotia. Here Agamemnon, in hunting, killed a stag, which was sacred to Diana, and the goddess in return visited the army with pestilence, and produced a calm which prevented the ships from leaving the port. Calchas, the soothsayer, thereupon announced that the wrath of the virgin goddess could only be appeased by the sacrifice of a virgin on her altar, and that none other but the daughter of the offender would be acceptable. Agamemnon, however reluctant, yielded his consent, and the maiden, Iphigenia, was sent for under the pretense that she was to be married to Achilles. When she was about to be sacrificed, the goddess relented and snatched her away, leaving a hind in her place, and Iphigenia, enveloped in a cloud, was carried to Taurus, where Diana made her priestess of her temple. Tennyson, in his Dream of Fair Women, makes Iphigenia thus describe her feelings at the moment of sacrifice. Quote, 
I was cut off from hope in that sad place, which yet to name my spirit loathes and fears. My father held his hand upon my face, I, blinded by my tears. Still strove to speak, my voice was thick with sighs, as in a dream, dimly I could descry, the stern black-bearded kings with wolfish eyes, waiting to see me die. The tall masts quivered as they lay afloat, the temples and the people and the shore. One drew a sharp knife through my tender throat, slowly, and nothing more. Unquote. The wind, now proving fair, the fleet made sail, and brought the forces to the coast of Troy. The Trojans came to oppose their landing, and at the first onset Protesilus fell by the hand of Hector. Protesilus had left at home his wife, Laodamia, who was most tenderly attached to him. When the news of his death reached her, she implored the gods to be allowed to converse with him only three hours. The request was granted. Mercury led Protesilus back to the upper world, and when he died a second time, Laodamia died with him. There was a story that the nymphs planted elm-trees round his grave, which grew very well, till they were high enough to command a view of Troy, and then withered away, while fresh branches sprang from the roots. Wordsworth has taken the story of Protesilus and Laodamia for the subject of a poem. It seems the oracle had declared that victory should be the lot of that party, from which should fall the first victim to the war. The poet represents Protesilus on his brief return to earth, as relating to Laodamia the story of his fate. Quote, the wished-for wind was given, I then revolved, the oracle upon the silent sea, and if no worthier led the way resolved, that of a thousand vessels mine should be, the foremost prow in pressing to the strand, mine the first blood that tinged the Trojan sand. Yet bitter, oft-times bitter, was the pang, when of thy loss I thought, beloved wife, on thee too fondly did my memory hang, and on the joys we shared in mortal life, the paths which we had trod, these fountains, flowers, my new-planned cities, and unfinished towers. But should suspense permit the foe to cry, behold, they tremble, haughty their array, yet of their number no one dares to die? In soul I swept the indignity away. Old frailties then recurred, but lofty thought, in act embodied, my deliverance wrought. Ellipsis. Upon the side of Hellespont such faith was entertained. A knot of spiry trees for ages grew, from out the tomb of him for whom she died, and ever when such stature they had gained, that Ilium's walls were subject to their view, the trees' tall summits withered at the sight, a constant interchange of growth and blight. Unquote. The Iliad The war continued without decisive results for nine years. Then an event occurred which seemed likely to be fatal to the cause of the Greeks, and that was a quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon. It is at this point that the great poem of Homer, the Iliad, begins. The Greeks, though unsuccessful against Troy, had taken the neighboring and allied cities, and in the division of the spoil a female captive, by name Chryseis, 
daughter of Croesus, priest of Apollo, had fallen to the share of Agamemnon. Croesus came bearing the sacred emblems of his office, and begged the release of his daughter. Agamemnon refused. Thereupon Croesus implored Apollo to afflict the Greeks till they should be forced to yield their prey. Apollo granted the prayer of his priest, and sent pestilence into the Grecian camp. Then a council was called to deliberate how to allay the wrath of the gods and avert the plague. Achilles boldly charged their misfortunes upon Agamemnon, as caused by his withholding Chryseis. Agamemnon, enraged, consented to relinquish his captive, but demanded that Achilles should yield to him in her stead, Briseis, a maiden who had fallen to Achilles's share in the division of the spoil. Achilles submitted, but forthwith declared that he would take no further part in the war. He withdrew his forces from the general camp, and openly avowed his intention of returning home to Greece. The gods and goddesses interested themselves as much in this famous war as the parties themselves. It was well known to them that fate had decreed that Troy should fall, at last if her enemies should persevere, and not voluntarily abandon the enterprise. Yet there was room enough left for chance to excite by turns the hopes and fears of the powers above who took part with either side. Juno and Minerva, in consequence of the slight put upon their charms by Paris, were hostile to the Trojans. Venus, for the opposite cause, favored them. Venus enlisted her admirer Mars on the same side, but Neptune favored the Greeks. Apollo was neutral, sometimes taking one side, sometimes the other, and Jove himself, though he loved the good King Priam, yet exercised a degree of impartiality, not, however, without exceptions. Thetis, the mother of Achilles, warmly resented the injury done to her son. She repaired immediately to Jove's palace, and besought him to make the Greeks repent of their injustice to Achilles, by granting success to the Trojan arms. Jupiter consented, and in the battle which ensued, the Trojans were completely successful. The Greeks were driven from the field, and took refuge in their ships. Then Agamemnon called a council of his wisest and bravest chiefs. Nestor advised that an embassy should be sent to Achilles to persuade him to return to the field, that Agamemnon should yield the maiden, the cause of the dispute, with ample gifts to atone for the wrong he had done. Agamemnon consented, and Ulysses, Ajax, and Phoenix were sent to carry to Achilles the penitent message. They performed that duty, but Achilles was deaf to their entreaties. He positively refused to return to the field, and persisted in his resolution to embark for Greece without delay. The Greeks had constructed a rampart around their ships, and now instead of besieging Troy, they were in a manner besieged themselves within their rampart. The next day after the unsuccessful embassy to Achilles, a battle was fought and the Trojans, favored by Jove, were successful, and succeeded in forcing a passage through the Grecian rampart, and were about to set fire to the ships. Neptune, seeing the Greeks so pressed, came to their rescue. He appeared in the form of Calchas, the prophet, encouraged the warriors with his shouts, and appealed to each individually 
till he raised their ardor to such a pitch that they forced the Trojans to give way. Ajax performed prodigies of valor, and at length encountered Hector. Ajax shouted defiance, to which Hector replied, and hurled his lance at the huge warrior. It was well aimed, and struck Ajax, where the belts that bore his sword and shield crossed each other on the breast. The double guard prevented its penetrating, and it fell harmless. Then Ajax, seizing a huge stone, one of those that served to prop the ships, hurled it at Hector. It struck him in the neck and stretched him on the plain. His followers instantly seized him and bore him off, stunned and wounded. While Neptune was thus aiding the Greeks and driving back the Trojans, Jupiter saw nothing of what was going on, for his attention had been drawn from the field by the wiles of Juno. That goddess had arrayed herself in all her charms, and to crown all had borrowed of Venus her girdle, called Cestus, which had the effect to heighten the wearer's charms to such a degree that they were quite irresistible. So prepared, Juno went to join her husband, who sat on Olympus watching the battle. When he beheld her she looked so charming that the fondness of his early love revived, and forgetting the contending armies and all other affairs of state, he thought only of her, and let the battle go as it would. But this absorption did not continue long, and when, upon turning his eyes downward, he beheld Hector stretched on the plain, almost lifeless from pain and bruises, he dismissed Juno in a rage, commanding her to send Iris and Apollo to him. When Iris came, he sent her with a stern message to Neptune, ordering him instantly to quit the field. Apollo was dispatched to heal Hector's bruises and to inspirit his heart. These orders were obeyed with such speed that while the battle still raged, Hector returned to the field, and Neptune betook himself to his own dominions. An arrow from Paris's bow wounded Machion, son of Aesculapius, who inherited his father's art of healing, and was therefore of great value to the Greeks as their surgeon, besides being one of their bravest warriors. Nestor took Machion in his chariot, and conveyed him from the field. As they passed the ships of Achilles, that hero, looking out over the field, saw the chariot of Nestor, and recognized the old chief, but could not discern who the wounded chief was. So calling Patroclus, his companion and dearest friend, he sent him to Nestor's tent to inquire. Patroclus, arriving at Nestor's tent, saw Machion wounded, and having told the cause of his coming would have hastened away, but Nestor detained him, to tell him the extent of the Grecian calamities. He reminded him also how, at the time of departing for Troy, Achilles and himself had been charged by their respective fathers with different advice, Achilles to aspire to the highest pitch of glory, Patroclus, as the elder, to keep watch over his friend, and to guide his inexperience. Now, said Nestor, is the time for such influence. If the gods so please, thou mayest win him back to the common cause. But if not, let him at least send his soldiers to the field. And come thou, Patroclus, clad in his armor, and perhaps the very sight of it may drive back the Trojans. Patroclus was strongly moved with this address, and hastened back to Achilles, 
revolving in his mind all he had seen and heard. He told the prince the sad condition of affairs at the camp of their late associates. Diomede, Ulysses, Agamemnon, Machion, all wounded, the rampart broken down, the enemy among the ships preparing to burn them, and thus to cut off all means of return to Greece. While they spoke, the flames burst forth from one of the ships. Achilles, at the sight, relented so far as to grant Patroclus his request to lead the Myrmidons, for so were Achilles' soldiers called, to the field, and to lend him his armor, that he might thereby strike more terror into the minds of the Trojans. Without delay the soldiers were marshalled. Patroclus put on the radiant armor, and mounted the chariot of Achilles, and led forth the men ardent for battle. But before he went, Achilles strictly charged him that he should be content with repelling the foe. Seek not, said he, to press the Trojans without me, lest thou add still more to the disgrace already mine. Then exhorting the troops to do their best, he dismissed them full of ardor to the fight. Patroclus and his Myrmidons at once plunged into the contest where it raged hottest, at the sight of which the joyful Grecians shouted and the ships re-echoed the acclaim. The Trojans, at the sight of the well-known armor, struck with terror, looked everywhere for refuge. First those who had got possession of the ship and set it on fire left and allowed the Grecians to retake it and extinguish the flames. Then the rest of the Trojans fled in dismay. Ajax, Menelaus, and the two sons of Nestor performed prodigies of valor. Hector was forced to turn his horses' heads and retire from the enclosure, leaving his men entangled in the fosse to escape as they could. Patroclus drove them before him, slaying many, none daring to make a stand against him. At last Sarpedon, son of Jove, ventured to oppose himself in fight to Patroclus. Jupiter looked down upon him, and would have snatched him from the fate which awaited him, but Juno hinted that if he did so it would induce all others of the inhabitants of heaven to interpose in like manner whenever any of their offspring were endangered, to which reason Jove yielded. Sarpedon threw his spear, but missed Patroclus, but Patroclus threw his with better success. It pierced Sarpedon's breast, and he fell, and calling to his friends to save his body from the foe, expired. Then a furious contest arose for the possession of the corpse. The Greeks succeeded and stripped Sarpedon of his armor, but Jove would not allow the remains of his son to be dishonored, and by his command Apollo snatched from the midst of the combatants the body of Sarpedon, and committed it to the care of the twin brothers, Death and Sleep, by whom it was transported to Lycia, the native land of Sarpedon, where it received due funeral rites. Thus far Patroclus had succeeded to his utmost wish in repelling the Trojans and relieving his countrymen, but now came a change of fortune. Hector, born in his chariot, confronted him. Patroclus threw a vast stone at Hector, which missed its aim, but smote Sabrianus, the charioteer, and knocked him from the car. Hector leaped from the chariot to rescue his friend, and Patroclus also descended to complete his victory. 
Thus the two heroes met face to face. At this decisive moment the poet, as if reluctant to give Hector the glory, records that Phoebus took part against Patroclus. He struck the helmet from his head, and the lance from his hand. At the same moment an obscure Trojan wounded him in the back, and Hector, pressing forward, pierced him with his spear. He fell, mortally wounded. Then arose a tremendous conflict for the body of Patroclus, but his armor was at once taken possession of by Hector, who, retiring a short distance, divested himself of his own armor, and put on that of Achilles, then returned to the fight. Ajax and Menelaus defended the body, and Hector and his bravest warriors struggled to capture it. The battle raged with equal fortunes, when Jove enveloped the whole face of heaven with a dark cloud. The lightning flashed, the thunder roared, and Ajax, looking round for someone whom he might dispatch to Achilles, to tell him of the death of his friend, and of the imminent danger that his remains would fall into the hands of the enemy, could see no suitable messenger. It was then that he exclaimed, in those famous lines so often quoted, quote, Father of heaven and earth, deliver thou, Ikea's host from darkness, clear the skies, give day, and since thy sovereign will is such, destruction with it, but, oh, give us day. Unquote. Cowper. Or, as rendered by Pope, quote, Lord of earth and air, O king, O father, hear my humble prayer. Dispel this cloud, the light of heaven restore. Give me to see, and Ajax asks no more. If Greece must perish, we thy will obey, but let us perish in the face of day. Unquote. Jupiter heard the prayer, and dispersed the clouds. Then Ajax sent Antilochus to Achilles, with the intelligence of Patroclus's death, and of the conflict raging for his remains. The Greeks at last succeeded in bearing off the body to the ships, closely pursued by Hector and Aeneas, and the rest of the Trojans. Achilles heard the fate of his friend with such distress that Antilochus feared for a while that he would destroy himself. His groans reached the ears of his mother, Thetis, far down in the depths of ocean where she abode, and she hastened to him to inquire the cause. She found him overwhelmed with self-reproach that he had indulged his resentment so far, and suffered his friend to fall a victim to it. But his only consolation was the hope of revenge. He would fly instantly in search of Hector, but his mother reminded him that he was now without armor, and promised him, if he would but wait till the morrow, she would procure from him a suit of armor from Vulcan, more than equal to that he had lost. He consented, and Thetis immediately repaired to Vulcan's palace. She found him busy at his forge, making tripods for his own use, so artfully constructed that they moved forward of their own accord when wanted, and retired again when dismissed. On hearing the request of Thetis, Vulcan immediately laid aside his work, and hastened to comply with her wishes. He fabricated a splendid suit of armor for Achilles, first a shield adorned with elaborate devices, then a helmet crusted with gold, then a corselet and greaves of impenetrable temper, all perfectly adapted to his form, and of consummate workmanship. It was all done in one night, 
and Thetis, receiving it, descended with it to earth, and laid it down at Achilles's feet at the dawn of day. The first glow of pleasure that Achilles had felt since the death of Patroclus was at the sight of this splendid armor. And now, arrayed in it, he went forth into the camp, calling all the chiefs to council. When they were all assembled, he addressed them. Renouncing his displeasure against Agamemnon, and bitterly lamenting the miseries that had resulted from it, he called on them to proceed at once to the field. Agamemnon made a suitable reply, laying all the blame on At, the goddess of discord, and thereupon complete reconcilement took place between the heroes. Then Achilles went forth to battle, inspired with a rage and thirst for vengeance that made him irresistible. The bravest warriors fled before him, or fell by his lance. Hector, cautioned by Apollo, kept aloof, but the god, assuming the form of one of Priam's sons, Lycaon, urged Aeneas to encounter the terrible warrior. Aeneas, though he felt himself unequal, did not decline the combat. He hurled his spear with all his force against the shield the work of Vulcan. It was formed of five metal plates, two were of brass, two of tin, and one of gold. The spear pierced two thicknesses, but was stopped in the third. Achilles threw his with better success. It pierced through the shield of Aeneas, but glanced near his shoulder and made no wound. Then Aeneas seized a stone, such as two men of modern times could hardly lift, and was about to throw it, and Achilles, with sword drawn, was about to rush upon him, when Neptune, who looked out upon the contest, moved with pity for Aeneas, who he saw would surely fall a victim if not speedily rescued, spread a cloud between the combatants, and lifting Aeneas from the ground, bore him over the heads of warriors and steeds to the rear of the battle. Achilles, when the mist cleared away, looked round in vain for his adversary, and acknowledging the prodigy, turned his arms against the other champions. But none dared stand before him, and Priam, looking down from the city walls, beheld his whole army in full flight towards the city. He gave command to open wide the gates to receive the fugitives, and to shut them as soon as the Trojans should have passed, lest the enemy should enter likewise. But Achilles was so close in pursuit that that would have been impossible if Apollo had not, in the form of Agenor, Priam's son, encountered Achilles for a while, then turned to fly, and taken the way apart from the city. Achilles pursued, and had chased his supposed victim far from the walls, when Apollo disclosed himself, and Achilles, perceiving how he had been deluded, gave up the chase. But when the rest had escaped into the town, Hector stood without, determined to await the combat. His old father called to him from the walls, and begged him to retire, nor tempt the encounter. His mother, Hecuba, also besought him to the same effect, but all in vain. How can I, he said to himself, by whose command the people went to this day's contest, where so many have fallen, seek safety for myself against a single foe? But what if I offer him to yield up Helen, and all her treasures, and ample of our own beside? Ah, no, it is too late. He would not even hear me through, but slay me while I spoke. While he thus ruminated, Achilles approached, terrible as Mars, 
his armor flashing lightning as he moved. At that sight Hector's heart flailed him, and he fled. Achilles swiftly pursued. They ran, still keeping near the walls, till they had thrice encircled the city. As often as Hector approached the walls, Achilles intercepted him, and forced him to keep out in a wider circle. But Apollo sustained Hector's strength, and would not let him sink in weariness. Then Pallas, assuming the form of Dephobus, Hector's bravest brother, appeared suddenly at his side. Hector saw him with delight, and thus strengthened, stopped his flight, and turned to meet Achilles. Hector threw his spear, which struck the shield of Achilles, and bounded back. He turned to receive another from the hand of Dephobus, but Dephobus was gone. Then Hector understood his doom, and said, Alas! It is plain this is my hour to die. I thought Dephobus at hand, but Pallas deceived me, and he is still in Troy. But I will not fall inglorious. So saying he drew his falchion from his side, and rushed at once to combat. Achilles, secured behind his shield, waited the approach of Hector. When he came within reach of his spear, Achilles, choosing with his eye a vulnerable part, where the armor leaves the neck uncovered, aimed his spear at that part, and Hector fell, death-wounded, and feebly said, Spare my body, let my parents ransom it, and let me receive funeral rites from the sons and daughters of Troy. To which Achilles replied, Dog, name not ransom, nor pity to me, on whom you have brought such dire distress. No, trust me, Naught shall save thy carcass from the dogs. Though twenty ransoms, and thy weight in gold, were offered, I would refuse it all. So saying, he stripped the body of its armor, and fastening cords to the feet, tied them behind his chariot, leaving the body to trail along the ground. Then, mounting the chariot, he lashed the steeds, and so dragged the body to and fro before the city. What words can tell the grief of King Priam and Queen Hecuba at this sight? His people could scarce restrain the old king from rushing forth. He threw himself in the dust, and besought them each by name to give him way. Hecuba's distress was not less violent. The citizens stood round them weeping. The sound of the morning reached the ears of Andromache, the wife of Hector, as she sat among her maidens at work, and anticipating evil, she went forth to the wall. When she saw the sight there presented, she would have thrown herself headlong from the wall, but fainted and fell into the arms of her maidens. Recovering, she bewailed her fate, picturing to herself her country ruined, herself a captive, and her son dependent for his bread on the charity of strangers. When Achilles and the Greeks had taken the revenge on the killer of Patroclus, they busied themselves in paying due funeral rites to their friend. A pile was erected, and the body burned with due solemnity, and then ensued games of strength and skill, chariot races, wrestling, boxing, and archery. Then the chiefs sat down to the funeral banquet, and after that retired to rest. But Achilles neither partook of the feast nor of sleep. The recollection of his lost friend kept him awake, remembering their companionship in toil and dangers, in battle or on the perilous deep. Before the earliest dawn he left his tent, and joining to his chariot his swift steeds, 
he fastened Hector's body to be dragged behind. Twice he dragged him around the tomb of Patroclus, leaving him at length stretched in the dirt. But Apollo would not permit the body to be torn or disfigured with all this abuse, but preserved it free from all taint or defilement. While Achilles indulged his wrath in thus disgracing brave Hector, Jupiter in pity summoned Thetis to his presence. He told her to go to her son and prevail on him to restore the body of Hector to his friends. Then Jupiter sent Iris to King Priam to encourage him to go to Achilles and beg the body of his son. Iris delivered her message, and Priam immediately prepared to obey. He opened his treasuries and took out rich garments and cloths, with ten talents in gold, and two splendid tripods, and a golden cup of matchless workmanship. Then he called to his sons, and bade them draw forth his litter, and place in it the various articles, designed for a ransom to Achilles. When all was ready, the old king, with a single companion as aged as himself, the herald, Idaeus, drove forth from the gates, parting there with Hecuba, his queen, and all his friends, who lamented him as going to his certain death. But Jupiter, beholding with compassion the venerable king, sent Mercury to be his guide and protector. Mercury, assuming the form of a young warrior, presented himself to the aged couple, and while at the sight of him they hesitated whether to fly or yield, the god approached, and grasping Priam's hand, offered to be their guide to Achilles's tent. Priam gladly accepted his offered service, and he, mounting the carriage, assumed the reins, and soon conveyed them to the tent of Achilles. Mercury's wand put to sleep all the guards, and without hindrance he introduced Priam into the tent where Achilles sat, attended by two of his warriors. The old king threw himself at the feet of Achilles, and kissed those terrible hands which had destroyed so many of his sons. Think, O Achilles, he said, of thy own father, full of days like me, and trembling on the gloomy verge of life. Perhaps even now some neighbor chief oppresses him, and there is none at hand to succor him in his distress. Yet doubtless, knowing that Achilles lives, he still rejoices, hoping that one day he shall see thy face again. But no comfort cheers me, whose bravest sons, so late the flower of Ilium, all have fallen. Yet one I had, one more than all the rest, the strength of my age, whom, fighting for his country, thou hast slain. I come to redeem his body, bringing inestimable ransom with me. Achilles, reverence the gods, recollect thy father, for his sake show compassion to me. These words moved Achilles, and he wept, remembering by turns his absent father and his lost friend. Moved with pity of Priam's silver locks and beard, he raised him from the earth, and thus spake, Priam, I know that thou hast reached this place conducted by some god, for without aid divine no mortal, even in his prime of youth, had dared the attempt. I grant thy request, moved thereto by the evident will of Jove. So saying, he arose, and went forth with his two friends, and unloaded of its charge the litter, leaving two mantles and a robe for the covering of the body, which they placed on the litter, 
and spread the garments over it, that not unveiled it should be borne back to Troy. Then Achilles dismissed the old king with his attendants, having first pledged himself to allow a truce of twelve days for the funeral solemnities. As the litter approached the city, and was descried from the walls, the people poured forth to gaze once more on the face of their hero. Foremost of all, the mother and the wife of Hector came, and at the sight of the lifeless body renewed their lamentations. The people all wept with them, and to the going down of the sun there was no pause or abatement of their grief. The next day preparations were made for the funeral solemnities. For nine days the people brought wood and built the pile, and on the tenth they placed the body on the summit and applied the torch, while all Troy, thronging forth, encompassed the pile. When it had completely burned, they quenched the cinders with wine, collected the bones, and placed them in a golden urn, which they buried in the earth, and reared a pile of stones over the spot. Quote, Such honors Ilium to her hero paid, and peaceful slept the mighty Hector's shade. Unquote. Pope End of chapter 27